This is an audio cast of the Frontline program, The Rise of ISIS, broadcast October 28th on PBS. Tonight on Frontline. If you threaten America, you will find no safe haven. As the United States, with a coalition of other countries, wage a new war on terror, Frontline investigates how ISIS gains such a dangerous stronghold. It goes from being nothing to being the most powerful active group within like 12 months. It's extraordinary what happens. Tonight, from the ashes of Al-Qaeda, ISIS builds enough strength and the monster grows. Correspondent Martin Smith uncovers the early warnings. ISIS didn't become the group that it is today until they went to Syria. The missteps. The intelligence analysis continued to point to what could happen. The view was, this is a rock's problem, let them deal with it. And the ancient tribal hatreds that fueled. These are not Muslims, and frankly, they're barely human beings. The rise of ISIS. made possible by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. And by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Major support for Frontline is provided by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is available at macfound.org. Additional support is provided by the Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. The Wincote Foundation, and by the Frontline Journalism Fund, with major support from John and Joanne Hagler, and additional support from Millicent Bell through the Millicent and Eugene Bell Foundation. It was late 2011 when American troops finally left Iraq. For U.S. soldiers, the war in Iraq has come to an end. After eight long years, the war seemed like it was over. The last U.S. soldier is out of Iraq. Iraq's leaders said they were ready to go it alone. Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki flew to Washington to mark the occasion. Former Iraq government spokesman Laith Kuba. It was a moment of optimism. There was a sense of pride that uh, the occupying forces really left. And a lot of Iraqis, Sunnis and Shias, were responding positively to that. Today I'm proud to welcome Prime Minister Maliki. The elected leader... Michael Gordon, The New York Times. Both sides presented it as a victory. Maliki presented it as a, a great accomplishment. Iraq would stand on its own two feet. President Obama talked about this new democratic Iraq. What we have now achieved is an Iraq that is uh, self-governing, that is inclusive, and that has enormous potential. President Obama gives a very rosy picture of where things are. What'd you think? 
former U.S. Embassy advisor Ali Kaderi. As somebody who voted for President Obama, I was deeply disappointed because I knew those words were going to go back and haunt him. Thank you very much, everybody. Former Foreign Minister Hashyar Zabari. It was uh, at that trip, actually, when things started to go astray. What happened was that while he was in Washington, Maliki received a phone call from Baghdad about a terrorist plot implicating his vice president, Tariq al-Hashimi, the most senior Sunni politician in the Shia-led government. It accused Hashimi's bodyguards of planning an attack on Shia targets. We were at the Blair house, I recall. Maliki, he was fiddling with his uh, phone. He said, well, some guards of uh, Tariq Hashimi, the vice president, have been monitoring our compound, and they have been arrested. Maliki relayed the news to President Obama. I think uh, the president's response was, well, every country has its own rules, its own law. I mean, the rule of law should be applied. How did Maliki interpret what the president told him? I think he interpreted this may be some support of uh, any future actions. Vali Nasser, Johns Hopkins. The response he got from the president was that this is an internal Iraqi affair. And that, to Maliki, was, was a green light uh, in terms of what he can do with the Sunnis because the United States is not going to stand in his way. Maliki returned to Baghdad. And then just one day after the last American soldiers left Iraq... Maliki immediately orders that Hashemi be arrested. And it took a lot of people by surprise. Uh, I think that was a departure point. It showed Maliki is really independent from the Americans. Before he could be arrested, Hashemi fled. He was tried in absentia and sentenced to death. We interviewed him in Doha, the capital of Qatar. Was it possible that your bodyguards were involved? No, no way. No in way. any kind of... No way. Some of your bodyguards appeared on television. Yes. I do have uh, plenty of, of reports of the way that my guards be, being treated, unfortunately. When they just uh, received brutal uh, torturing effect. Writers Baghdad bureau chief Ned Parker. We'll never know what is true because they were held in the Baghdad Brigade headquarters in the Green Zone. It's been clearly documented over time that torture happened there. It's been documented by Iraq's human rights ministry and the Red Cross. There's no doubt torture happened there. So the confessions were likely mm -hmm. the result of torture. Mm -hmm. Hashemi and his bodyguards would just be Maliki's first target. Former finance minister Rafael Asawi. Hundreds of Sunnis have been arrested after the American uh, leaving of the country. Thousands, in fact. In 2012, thousands of Sunnis suspected of subversion were held for months or longer without charges ever being filed. So everyone talked to Maliki that this is not the way of dealing with the, uh, with the people. This is a discrimination, in fact. But he's not listening to anyone. Many Sunnis didn't even make it to jail. Former British intelligence officer Richard Barrett. The Shia militia were very, very violent. There were many, many instances in Baghdad and in many other parts of Iraq of Sunnis turning up with a bullet in the back of their head and their hands bound behind them. This was common. This was a daily, daily occurrence. After the departure of the Americans, more and more Sunnis turned up dead in the streets of Baghdad. 
Dexter Filkins, The New Yorker. The thing to understand about Maliki is, is that when he looks at Iraq's Sunni minority, he sees, you know, Al-Qaeda, he sees the Ba'athists, he sees military coups, he sees plots against him, he sees a population which despises him and wants to come back into power. Ali Kaderi. This is a man who many of his close relatives were secretly arrested and tortured by Saddam's regime. He is capable, and yet, if I could use one word to describe Nouri al-Maliki, it's paranoia. Former Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta. He had a deep fear that ultimately the Ba'athists were going to go after him and that uh, he was going to be targeted and that uh, uh, he would lose power and uh, it would be the ghost of Saddam Hussein again. I think that's what he worried about. Maliki also enraged the tribesmen of the Sunni awakening. These were the tribesmen who, in exchange for American money and promises of political inclusion in new Iraq, had helped defeat al-Qaeda years earlier. Former Foreign Minister Hashar Zabari. I think that he was suspicious of them, really, of this force. They were not sustained or maintained as a potential force that the government might need it later on. Former U.S. military advisor David Kilcullen. And then the other key thing was that Sunni leaders in the army and Sunni leaders in the police began to be sidelined, and people with a strong Shia sectarian bent replaced them. And that meant that a lot of people felt they were being excluded, and that was true, they were. Meanwhile, al-Qaeda in Iraq, the group that would become ISIS, was camped in Iraq's western deserts. It was not much of a force. The surge and the Sunni awakening had severely reduced it. Remember, by the time the Americans left Iraq, the insurgency was broken, uh, the Sunni insurgency. It was broken. It was on its last legs. Al-Qaeda had been decimated. What remained, though, were the most battle-hardened al-Qaeda militants, a few embittered tribesmen, and some remnants of Saddam's Ba'athist military hoping to regain power. This is a collection of very hardened killers. These are the guys that the United States didn't manage to kill during the war then. Congressional research analyst Kenneth Katzman. These are mostly young men who were in prison, some of them under Maliki, some of them were in US prisons. Mr. Baghdadi, the head of ISIS, was in Camp Bukha. After he was released from Bukha, the American-run prison, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi would, in time, become head of al-Qaeda in Iraq, directing ambushes on Iraqi forces and suicide bombings. But he had greater ambitions. In the summer of 2011, he sent a few men into Syria to join the rebels fighting the Shia government of Bashar al-Assad. Baghdadi, the Syrian war was a gift. Dexter Filkins. Suddenly, you have a complete breakdown of, of the state in Syria. You have this vast open space between the two countries. And so these guys, they're suddenly able to find life. Former FBI Special Agent Ali Soufan. ISIS didn't become the group that it is today until they went to Syria. Syria is what made ISIS ISIS. Kenneth Pollitt, Brookings Institution. We don't know how many, 
al-Qaeda in Iraq guys move from Iraq to Syria in the 2011-2012 time frame. But once they move into Syria, all of a sudden they're able to operate once again, all of a sudden they're able to recruit once again. Their message gains traction with the Sunnis of Syria who are looking to wage a civil war against the Shia government. Al-Qaeda was joining the fight along with dozens of other Syrian Sunni rebel groups, but it quickly became a major force. Baghdadi sends a bunch of guys into Syria. It goes from being nothing to being the most powerful active group that are running operations all over the country within like 12 months. It's extraordinary what happens. It takes off like fire. Back in Iraq, Maliki's purges of Sunnis continued. And Maliki upped the ante in December 2012, when his police rounded up the bodyguards of another prominent Sunni leader, Finance Minister Rafi al-Asawi. Rafa Sawi, everybody loves the guy. I um, mean, he's greatly respected. I've seen no evidence uh, that suggested that his bodyguards are doing anything bad, um, to the contrary. And so when, when his bodyguards are arrested, um, that, I think, is the, the real blow to the Sunni community, because everybody knows Rafa Asawi uh, is a peaceful man. So you were sitting inside the yes. finance ministry? Yeah, they attacked the, the office. And they took 16 of my bodyguards. These are almost eight, 10 years. They are with me, I'm sure. They are against terrorism. All of them, almost, they are my close relative. After the arrest warrant is issued for Rafael Asawi, I called Maliki up. I said, what are you doing? What the hell is going on? He's a colleague of ours. He was with us yesterday in the cabinet. And now some police people have gone to arrest him. This is absolutely unacceptable. Hundreds of thousands of people were very upset because they feel that this is a story of dignity. No Sunni is exempted. People started to prepare for a big demonstration in Fallujah and Ramadi. So I called them, I, I said to them, I'll join the demonstration. Our tragedy is bigger than me and my bodyguards. Anyone, the Maliki and the gangs of the militias of Maliki can, can arrest anyone. One day, we will kick them out, one after another. Human rights activist Hannah Edouard. I went there. They are protesting for their rights. And they have legitimate demands for releasing the innocent people in prisons. Some of these in detention center for two, three, six years without trials. They are telling us of in one month or twice in a month, three months, raids in their community and collecting just young people like that collecting people. Analyst Ken Katzman. They were not fully integrated into the security forces as was promised, so they felt, again, completely marginalized. The idea that it's just terrorists, Maliki is trying to cultivate that impression. No, the average man in the street, woman in the street Sunni, perceived it exactly that same way. Officials in the White House saw what was happening. Obama's ambassador to Iraq had warned that Maliki needed to be contained. James Jeffrey. This was a constant warning that I had made and that others had made uh, before me that Maliki was a problem. 
On the other hand, the president and the country had taken the position, uh, Iraq was a mistake. We've ended our war in Iraq. Uh, if we see things we don't like, we'll do calls from the vice president, just like we do with 150 other countries that have similar situations. Kenneth Pollack. The Obama administration certainly did tell Prime Minister Maliki and other Iraqis that they wanted to see them play by the democratic rules, that they thought it was a mistake for them to go after their political rivals in this fashion. But they did it in private. They didn't do it in public. And they certainly never imposed any kind of a cost. Leon Panetta. You've got to continue to put pressure on them to do the right thing. I think everybody just kept their fingers crossed that ultimately Maliki would somehow step down or be replaced and that uh, Iraq would be in a better place. Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes. No, I don't think that's accurate. We were, we were engaged with all of Iraq's communities. We were engaged with Prime Minister Maliki, and we were seeking to manage this and press Iraqi leaders to move in a more inclusive direction. But by definition, our leverage in order to affect political outcomes inside of very complicated uh, societies like Iraq has inherent limits. And at the end of the day, um, it's going to be Iraqi leaders who have to make these determinations uh, to work together. As weeks went by, the demonstrations grew. In Ramadi, protesters camped out on the main road between Baghdad and Jordan, a vital trucking artery. In other Sunni cities and towns, Fallujah, Mosul, Tikrit, other protests halted traffic and commerce. With youth unemployment running as high as 40%, young men were free to gather. And support poured in from around the Sunni Arab world to pay for tents, meals, and transportation. One of the principal funders was a wealthy Iraqi businessman living in Jordan, a man with ties to the Ba'athist regime of Saddam Hussein. How much money did you spend in support of those protests? Hamas al Khanjar. All that the demonstrations needed. And how much was that? All that was needed. I don't know, whatever was needed. Hanjar also paid for the establishment of pro-Sunni TV stations. We encouraged channels like Baghdad, Al-Rafidain, and Fallujah to defend our people. Maliki is the cause of all of this. He has a problem with the Sunnis. This is the revolution of the tribes. I am proud of it, and I support it. Sixty miles away in Baghdad, Iraq's Shia were organizing their own demonstrations. Here and in other Shia cities throughout Iraq's south, people encouraged Maliki. They were supporting him. He was popular in the streets. He was popular in Najaf. He was popular in Basra. He was popular in Babel, popular in Baghdad. And when he moved against Sunnis, he found himself getting more popular. So there was no real disincentive at that point to discontinue doing what he was doing.
Back in Syria, Al-Qaeda was steadily gaining ground. In its early months, the group relied on donations from wealthy Sunnis in the region. The Saudis, the Kuwaitis, the Emiratis, all of the Gulf states and a whole variety of other countries began to provide support to a whole variety of Sunni opposition groups. And they weren't terribly careful about which groups got the aid. And soon, Al-Qaeda would need fewer donations. As they gained territory, they would become more self-sustaining, robbing banks, running extortion rackets, seizing Syrian transportation routes, and eventually Syrian oil fields. Former ambassador to Syria, Robert Ford. They were very smart. They understood if we can control those oil wells, we'll be able to sell the oil on the black market and get cash. Um, and they went about that in a very conscientious way, field by field. In this Al-Qaeda video, they are shown planning and then executing an attack on a major Syrian power station. With the help of God Almighty, we freed the power plant from the evil Bashar al-Assad. Now we go to his headquarters. We're coming to get you, Bashar. U.S. Ambassador to Syria Robert Ford had urged the administration to quickly provide aid to pro-Western Syrian rebels. Otherwise, he warned, al-Qaeda would dominate. I think there was uh, certainly warnings from people at my level that in a large ungoverned space, um, having al-Qaeda or al-Qaeda-affiliated groups able to operate freely would be as much a risk to the United States as Somalia, Yemen, and Afghanistan were. And in each of those places, the Americans had to act. But in Syria, the president chose not to send arms. Leon Panetta. I think the president's concern, and I respect his decision, but I think his concern was that ultimately, if we provide those kinds of weapons, we couldn't be sure whose hands they might ultimately wind up in. You respect his decision. He was the commander-in-chief, but you think he was wrong. I think we, we made the wrong decision in not providing assistance to the, uh, to the rebels. James Jeffrey. I think President Obama has a fundamental belief that any military action or aiding local fighters will lead to almost inexorably 150,000 troops on the ground like Iraq or 500,000 like Vietnam, slippery slope, down the drain, huge disaster for America. I think he believes that, I sincerely. I think he's absolutely wrong. You were getting advice from Ambassador Ford Ambassador Jeffrey in Iraq, that we needed to get involved in the Syrian situation or the al-Qaeda elements that were operating there were going to dominate and, and become a much more serious issue. Ben Rhodes. Well, let's step back here. Um, I think in the rearview mirror, um, people suggest that uh, it was about um, ISIL. Um, in those conversations in 2012, uh, it was very much about what can we do uh, to affect change as it relates to Bashar al-Assad. Correct, but the urgency increased as al-Qaeda-linked uh, rebels gained more and more uh, power and money. 
Absolutely. Um, and again, uh, it's a complicated picture. The president was willing to get engaged in support for the opposition in Syria, uh, but he wanted to make clear that we understood there were limits as to how we could solve this problem with our military, uh, and that we had to be very deliberate and careful uh, when it comes to something like providing military assistance to an opposition group. Throughout 2012, the president held off. Without U.S. arms, the more moderate Syrian rebels struggled. Al-Qaeda, meanwhile, was ready to expand back into Iraq. In a campaign called Breaking the Walls, they launched a series of attacks on Iraqi prisons. Al-Qaeda's ranks swelled with newly freed inmates. Then, in March 2013, a few of Al-Qaeda's black flags began to appear in the midst of the protests in Ramadi. And around this time, they started calling themselves the Islamic State in Iraq and al-Sham, ISIS. Their presence stoked Maliki's worst fears. Former Foreign Minister Zabari. That was a turning point, really. That was a turning point in the government attitude toward this demonstration. We told you so. These are infiltrated. This is the black flag of Al-Qaeda. Then in April 2013, at a Sunni protest camp in the town of Hawija, there was a confrontation. Dexter Filkins. The facts are a little unclear. You have some provocateurs. There's a police officer who's, who's killed. Maybe by Al-Qaeda, maybe not. And Maliki responds massively and with enormous force. Former finance minister Rafael Asawi. No one thought that the Iraqi army can attack demonstrators in Hawija. They are demonstrating for months at that time, peaceful, calling for the rights. So when they brought their tanks and their uh, heavy vehicles of the army and, and the security forces of the Ministry of Interior and attacked, they killed the people in a very criminal model. It's unclear how many people were killed. The estimates that I've heard from people who saw the bodies was that there were hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of bodies. And at that point, ISIS, they were arguing you're not going to get anywhere with peaceful protests. You need to have muscle. You need to use some measure of violence. And they started to gain more traction with that argument. So these are people, young men, who sat in those protests in Ramadi and Hawija, who decided to take up weapons and join with ISIS. Ali Kaderi. They've tried to. They voted for a new government in Baghdad in 2010. Their representatives, like Hashimi and Isawi, uh, fellow Sunni Arabs, were purged. They were humiliated. They tried to form a region. They tried to exercise civil disobedience. They were attacked with Maliki's forces. And so now they've taken up arms. It's been called the revolution. It's been called the insurgency. Whatever you want to call it, it was back. If you take Iraq's Sunni community, its leadership, it's full of reasonable people. It's full of secular, educated, 
very moderate people. Um, but they look around and they say, where do we go? And the only people who are going to protect us are these really hard guys. We may not like them, but we need them, because otherwise there's nothing. Nobody's going to protect us. And the Americans aren't here anymore. Years earlier, the Sunni leadership had warned American officials what would happen if Maliki reneged on the promises of power sharing he'd made to Iraq Sunnis. The message was, if we are backed into a corner again, we will rise up, and this time we will not stop. We will take Baghdad, we will burn it, or we will die trying. Three months after Hawija, ISIS mounted a spectacular attack right on the outskirts of Baghdad, releasing 500 inmates from Abu Ghraib prison. Analyst Ken Katzman. Abu Ghraib is only seven or eight miles from Baghdad airport. It's 12 or 14 miles to the city. So it was very clear that ISIS-led Sunnis, basically, were encroaching and, and making major, major gains in Anbar province. Ned Parker, Reuters. It was a huge propaganda win for the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. It was basically the prison bust out was a statement of purpose that we're here. What started after Hawija in terms of the bombings, the spike in violence, we're orchestrating this and hell is coming. ISIS began bringing more reinforcements over the Syrian border. It became clear that the Iraqi army could not stop their advance. In Baghdad, the leadership was worried. I spoke with Maliki. I said, let's, let's admit it. You cannot do it. We cannot do it. Our military is, is dysfunctional. And uh, we have an option. If our democratic system is threatened, we can go and ask our American friends for help. In late October 2013, Maliki would set out, hat in hand, to Washington. The message was really, you know, we are under threat. We don't have control over our border with Syria. In terms of weapons, hellfire missiles, you see, we run out of them. And we warned about the seriousness of the situation, the, 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 the existential threat that this country is facing. But getting American aid beyond hellfire missiles was going to be a hard sell in spite of the fact that U.S. intelligence and defense officials were also increasingly alarmed about ISIS. Michael Gordon, The New York Times. The American intelligence community was saying that this group, the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, was becoming increasingly potent. They were expanding their footprint in Syria. They were expanding their operations in Iraq. There were months of these kinds of warning signals about the growth and expansion of ISIS. I think the intelligence analysis uh, continued to uh, point to uh, the implications of what, what was happening in Syria and what could happen uh, in, in Iraq. You know, this, this was not something that uh, people were not being made aware of in terms of the implications. The administration did agree to some small increases in military aid. Well, I want to welcome back, uh, but despite the warnings, the president was not ready to give more. Maliki wasn't seen as a trustworthy partner. He was hat in hand asking for more weapons. But the president did not appear to be tough on Maliki at that point publicly. 
Can you tell me that it was different behind closed doors? Yeah, privately, we said that you need not only uh, our security assistance, uh, you need a political program that all Iraqis can get behind. And what did he say? He would commit to do certain things, but there was never the sustained follow through that was going to be necessary uh, to really have an inclusive Iraqi uh, political culture. What leverage could you use with him at that point? Well, we obviously had significant relationships with Iraq, but at the end of the day, it's up to the Iraqi political leadership uh, to govern in an inclusive fashion. We couldn't do it for them when we had troops in Iraq. We couldn't do it for them when we didn't. And after that visit, things got worse. Got much worse. In December 2013, Maliki would strike once again, this time against a hardline Sunni parliamentarian, Ahmed Alawani. Ahmed Alawani was a Sunni politician, a member of parliament. He'd give angry speeches against Maliki's government. Patience has limits. All criminals, sectarian and filthy people, should understand that we will, God willing, behead them one by one. And Maliki decides that he's had enough, and the Iraqi forces stage a raid on his house. Awani's brother is there. The brother is killed. Ahmed Awani, the member of parliament, is taken away, but nobody's seen him since. After that arrest, Maliki sent the army into Ramadi to tear down the year-old protest camp. Maliki's move would prove disastrous. That provokes a Sunni uprising. The Sunni Arab population of Anbar rose up and said, OK, we're, we're sick and tired of you. You're oppressing us. Get the troops out of our cities. And the Islamic State takes advantage of that to move inside these cities. And from there, you have chapter one of the Iraq War of 2014 begin. What happened here is that by virtue of, of the Shias not opening it up and uh, allowing the Sunnis to participate, that they created the monster that has led to ISIS. So they created the monster that they feared. Exactly. The fighting lasted only a few days. In the end, the Iraqi army was no match. You would think this would set off real alarm bells in Washington. I mean, now you have them taking over a city just a few miles outside of Baghdad. The ISIS attacks on Ramadi and Fallujah certainly did set off some alarm bells in Washington, at least in certain quarters. Ken Pollock. But the top-level leadership continued to do virtually nothing. Presumably Biden gets on the phone to Maliki, or, I mean, what happens? Some phone calls were made, no question about that. But of course, the Iraqis have never seen the Obama administration actually take any action either to help them or to hurt them if they didn't do what the United States wanted. Brothers, I swear by God that we will defend your blood with our blood, and the armies will not advance unless it's over our dead bodies. In Iraq's north, 
ISIS was eyeing another target, Mosul, Iraq's second largest city. Months before they attacked, a Kurdish intelligence official gave Iraqi Foreign Minister Zabari a warning. Former Foreign Minister Zabari. Tell Maliki I have a very, very serious concerns. The terrorists have established themselves, they have encamped themselves in the western desert near the Syrian borders. And really they are planning to formally militarily overrun Mosul. And you took this message to I took this message to him. It was a clear message of warning. And he didn't take it. The White House, too, was warned. Former Ambassador James Jeffrey. The administration not only was warned by everybody back in January, it actually announced that it was going to um, intensify its support against uh, ISIS uh, with the Iraqi armed forces, and it did almost nothing. Ambassador Jeffrey says that the Obama administration said it was going to speed military assistance, but it did, in his words, almost nothing. Ben Rhodes. That's just not true. I mean, if you go back and you look at the record of what we were providing to the Iraqis, um, there was a steady increase, uh, whether you're talking about Hellfire missiles. The Apaches, uh, they were held up by Congress. Uh, we saw the expedition of that delivery to the Iraqis. Hellfire missiles started to come. They increased the intelligence capacity. But it was really not enough, to be honest with you. I mean, the United States could have done more. Then on June 6, 2014, ISIS sent several suicide car bombs into downtown Mosul. Along with ISIS fighters in pickup trucks. In some neighborhoods, they were warmly welcomed. The Iraqi army, on the other hand, was seen as a Shia militia. With no local support, the army had deserted by June 10th with barely a fight. Ken Katzman. They didn't know how to respond. They didn't want to respond. You know, they, these were people that didn't want to do any actual work. They were fat cats, I call them. They were people who were earning good money uh, to basically sit at a desk and uh, smoke cigarettes and drink good liquor all day. In the end, it took only 800 ISIS militants, with the help of local Ba'athist military cadres, to secure a city of 1.8 million people. Even ISIS was surprised. Dexter Filkins. The original intelligence was that ISIS did not come to invade Mosul. They didn't come to take it over. They came to break a bunch of people out of a prison. But what happens? They roll into the city, and the entire Iraqi army collapses. And they make some adjustments very quickly, on the spur of the moment, and decide, wow, um, we're not going to just get the prison. We're going to get the whole city. And then they just keep on rolling. Maliki is a coward. Victory is only from God. May my last words in life be, there is no God but God. For ISIS, the spoils included tons of US-made military equipment. Ali Kaderi. I don't think bin Laden could have ever dreamt that elements even more radical than his own Al-Qaeda would be armed with American M1A1 tanks, or 155 millimeter artillery, or up-armored Humvees, or MRAPs. 
from Mosul, ISIS rapidly advanced down the Tigris and captured Kayara, Al-Shirkat, Hawija, and Tikrit, the hometown of Saddam Hussein. There, ISIS was easily able to round up several hundred Iraqi soldiers. ISIS recorded their execution. What did you think when you saw these mass executions taking place? Ali Sufan. These guys are crazy. But there is method to their madness. And what is that method? Control. I mean, this is one of the first terrorist groups that's saying, you know what? We're not going to hit and run. And we're not even going to participate in politics as you know it. We actually want to kill everyone who disagrees with us. We want to control that piece of land. And whatever cost it is, we're going to do it. Al-Qaeda was an underground organization. It could hit, it could maim, it could terrorize people, bomb, blow up. We know all their tactics. But uh, ISIS has a different strategy. They have a plan, they have a strategy to establish a state, an Islamic emirate. On June 29th, ISIS declared a caliphate, an Islamic nation representing the world's Muslim faithful an entity that recognizes no political borders. As you can see, this is the so-called border. We don't recognize it, and we will never recognize it. For this ISIS propaganda video, militants bulldoze the Syrian-Iraq border. Under our feet right now. An ISIS recruit from Chile is calling on Muslims everywhere to join them. I will break the barrier of Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon, all the countries. It's the first barriers of many barriers we will bring. Former government spokesman Leith Kuba. By declaring the Khilafah, they did something nobody else has done. The Caliphate. The Caliphate. The implication of this in the minds of the traditional Salafi believers is that they have a religious obligation to pledge loyalty. Salafis being hardcore Islamist fundamentalists. I, I, I would say the r traditional religious fundamentalists, due to their faith in that particular sect, they have an obligation to respond to a caliph if he calls them. Now, I know not all Salafis will do that, but even if 1% of the Salafis do that, you're talking about tens of thousands of people now in Nigeria, in Saudi Arabia, in Jordan, in every Muslim country, Sunni country. We pledge to honor and obey. God is great. The Islamic State will endure. Former U.S. military advisor David Kilcullen. We have chosen to depict ISIS as a successor or a partner to al-Qaeda. It's actually not. Islamic State is a state-building enterprise. They're trying to create a real state, not some postmodern, virtual, you know, Al-Qaeda-style thing that only exists in your head. They're trying to create something that looks like a real state. It's a very different model. On July 4th, ISIS made another extraordinary move. 
in their newly occupied Mosul, the leader of ISIS, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, ascended the pulpit of the great mosque. Truly, all praise belongs to God. We praise him and seek his help and forgiveness. Michael Gordon, The New York Times. Baghdadi gave a sermon in Mosul. Bin Laden never did that. Zawahiri never did that. This is the time when the Prophet commands his armies to fight and do jihad against the infidels. In an Arab city, in broad daylight, an Arab city that used to be under control of American troops, it's a very um, ostentatious move and one that's likely to attract more support. If you desire what God has promised, then set out in jihad for his cause. After Baghdadi's sermon, thousands more jihadists flocked to Syria and Iraq. Former embassy advisor Ali Kaderi. Virtually every country in the world, you have young, disaffected youth, both men and women, who have little hope in their life, who want to be a part of something special, want to be a part of something successful, and they now see ISIL taking over vast swaths of both Syria and Iraq, succeeding like no one else has succeeded. This is the Al-Qaeda that Osama bin Laden only dreamed of building. And unlike bin Laden's Al-Qaeda, ISIS fighters operate under the command of experienced military officers. Several of the top leadership positions are now held by Ba'athists from Saddam's army. What you call ISIS, behind them sit the Ba'ath party and the former regime. And the Ba'athists are pretty key to that structure. I think without the Ba'athists, it becomes very difficult to uh, pursue ISIS's agenda. You lack a lot of the administrative capability and a lot of the military skills. They know how to emplace artillery. They know how to use tanks. They know how to set up defensive positions. They know how to go on the offensive. ISIS military strength was evident when, in August, fighters moved into Kurdish territory. The Kurdish Peshmerga, reputed to be Iraq's fiercest fighting force, were easily overrun by ISIS fighters armed with captured American weapons. Minorities in northern Iraq, Christians, Shabaks, Turkmen, faced a stark choice, convert or die or flee to Kurdistan. Tens of thousands of Yazidis fled their homes. Meanwhile, a column of ISIS fighters was approaching Erbil, ISIS is advancing closer to Erbil. Kurdistan's capital. There are some 40 American military advisors there. The United States has a special relationship with Kurdistan. There is a U.S. consulate in Erbil. Kurdistan is the silver lining of Iraq. A trillion dollars worth of global energy companies, Total, Chevron, Exxon, and Gazprom Neft, are invested in Kurdistan. It was the threat to Erbil that prompted the U.S. administration to finally intervene. Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Martin Dempsey. The trigger was threat to U.S. facilities in Erbil. That was the start of the air campaign. But the U.S. signaled to Iraqis that more assistance would come only if Maliki resigned. 
A week later, Maliki stepped aside, and the U.S. airstrikes stepped up. ISIS responded by releasing this video. This is James Wright Foley, an American citizen of your country. It was just one of many horrific videos they proudly shared. Former FBI special agent Ali Soufan. They knew how to use the social media. They knew how to promote themselves as the only reliable global jihadi movement. The fighting has just begun. You have thousands of foreign fighters who truly believe in this criminal behavior. This kind of bloodlust is psychosis. There's no other word for it. It's not, I mean, there's no political program that justifies it. I think killing is as important to ISIS as securing the caliphate, but killing first. My fellow Americans, tonight I want to speak to you about what the United States will do with our friends and allies to degrade and ultimately destroy the terrorist group known as ISIL. Is ISIS a threat to the United States? ISIS is a threat to the United States. In the near term, ISIS is an immediate threat to our interests in the Middle East. There is nothing that would lead us to believe that they would do anything but ethnically cleanse the region and absolutely create a Sunni-Shia civil war. Long term, if they achieve the Islamic State that they've declared, then absolutely it will be a threat initially to Europe, probably, and ultimately to us. One week after the president announced he would expand airstrikes into Syria, ISIS besieged the Syrian town of Kobani, right on the Turkish border. The U.S. is trying to coordinate military help from over 20 countries. But as U.S.-led coalition airstrikes bombed ISIS positions in Kobani, the Turkish army watched from just across the border, refusing to participate. Richard Barrett, former British intelligence. It's a regional issue. Turkey is a very obvious example. Which way is Turkey going now? It comes down to the sectarianism of the area, so it's an issue which Iran and Saudi Arabia have to address as well. All those countries really have to get together to say, are we prepared to at least shelve our differences and find a, a way that we can sort out this dreadful mess that has emerged in Syria and Iraq? Our interventions into this part of the world have not gone well in the past. So there's a lot of people who are going to say, look, I mean, I just don't see these guys as an immediate uh, imminent threat to the United States. Uh, I don't think any good is going to come by us trying to go in there and manage this. I'd say they're right. Ben Rhodes. Um, we're not going to do this um, by ourselves, and we're not going to do this for the region. We're not going to have large uh, U.S. forces on the ground to do this. The only way that you're going to solve this problem is if you get the countries and governments of the region invested in it. Today, ISIS is in control of large parts of Syria and Iraq. The U.S. is hoping that Iraq's new prime minister, Haider al-Abadi, a Shiite, can get Iraq's Sunni tribesmen to once again turn against ISIS. Without their trust and support, the Iraqi forces cannot win. 
without that trust between the Shia and the Sunni in Iraq, without that trust between the leaders of the Sunnis and the leaders of the Shia groups in Iraq, I think you're going to create a vacuum that no one will benefit from that vacuum but the extremists. Are you an optimist at this point? General Dempsey. No, I'm not an optimist. I mean, I've, you know, I've, I'm 41 years in the military, and I've, um, and I've spent, as I said, it seems to me, seven or eight of the last 12 years working these very issues in and around Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever else. This is the right campaign plan, but I'm pragmatic. And every campaign's assumptions have to be revisited as the campaign evolves. And some of these assumptions are actually, uh, I have no doubt, are going to be challenged. This morning, the committee receives testimony from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. In recent testimony, General Dempsey stated that the president may have to reconsider his pledge not to send in U.S. troops. My view at this point is that this coalition is the appropriate way forward. I believe that will prove true. But if it fails to be true, and if there are threats to the United States, then I, of course, would go back to the president and make a recommendation that may include the use of U.S. military ground forces. If General Dempsey does come to the point where he says we need to introduce uh, boots on the ground, will the president uh, reconsider? The president's view is that we do not need to do this with U.S. combat forces on the ground. I take that as a no? That's a no. Um, obviously, even if Dempsey comes forward and says that's what we need. I, again, uh, no in terms of how we are looking at this strategy. I, I can't anticipate every hypothetical scenario, but in terms of the strategy itself, uh, the president is very confident and comfortable uh, with a limiting principle as it relates to combat forces on the ground. ISIS is now in control of most of Iraq's Anbar province. American military advisors are coordinating the war just outside Baghdad. For more on the rise of ISIS, visit our website. Islamic State is a state-building enterprise. They're trying to create a real state. And check out our new iPad app at pbs.org frontline app. And subscribe to our YouTube channel. Now you can get original short Frontline documentaries. And connect to the Frontline community. Tell us what you think on Facebook and on Twitter. And sign up for our newsletter at pbs.org frontline. Frontline is made possible by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. And by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Major support for Frontline is provided by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is available at macfound.org. Additional support is provided by the Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at fordfoundation.org. The Wincote Foundation, and by the Frontline Journalism Fund, with major support from John and Joanne Hagler, and additional support from Millicent Bell through the Millicent and Eugene Bell Foundation.
The Rise of Isis was written and produced by Martin Smith and co-produced by Linda Hirsch. The deputy executive producer of Frontline is Rainey Aronson-Roth. The executive producer of Frontline is David Fanning. Frontline's The Rise of Isis is available on DVD. To order, visit shoppbs.org or call 1-800-PLAY-PBS. Frontline is also available for download on iTunes.